Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back, lovely listeners, to the start of a brand new year here on the Pre-Paces podcast. I am your host, Dr. Sam Williams, the Peter Pan of Paces, because I never really wanted to grow up and become a real medreg. A big welcome if you're a new listener to the show, and a big welcome back if you're joining us as one of our loyal listeners. This year is going to be bigger and better than ever, and I've no doubt it will also be filled with successes for all of you who are working so hard towards passing their MRCP paces. And speaking of successes, I want to give a quick shout out to two people who have really gone above and beyond with supporting the show over at the Buy Me A Coffee page, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. Massive congratulations to Dr. Dan Drodge, who emailed in to tell me about his recent paces pass and how the podcast helped him on his way to success. A huge thanks as well to Dr. Shiv Paddy, who emailed in telling us how much he enjoys the show and how it's helping him as an international candidate looking to succeed in paces. It's that sort of positive energy and support that keeps the show being produced on a regular basis. And a new place to keep your eyes on is our brand new website over at prepacespodcast.com. This is going to become a new hub for all things to do with the show, but enough about that. But let's get into our first episode of 2022. One last thing before we start the episode, listeners. Unbeknownst to me, at some point during the episode, the recording was flipping back and forth between my podcasting microphone and my computer microphone, the latter of which makes me sound like I'm speaking inside a giant tin can. I've already reported myself to the GMC for such an oversight, but please rest assured that normal service will resume in future episodes. But enough from me, let's get into the show. Welcome back team to the Pre-Paces podcast. I'm Dr. Sam Williams and whilst many of us suffer from a transient partial ptosis, particularly when attending the usual boring dross which passes for medical education these days, we are here to act as the naloxone to your opiates, the flumazenil to your lorazepam and dare I say it, the peridostigmine to your ACH receptor antibodies. And speaking of the latter, today we are discussing a topic which is sure to replace your fatigable weakness with a strength, style and panache when approaching a patient presenting in paces with symptoms suggestive of myasthenia gravis. Joining us today is Dr. Anna Francis, a neurology registrar working in Oxford, and we've managed to tempt her away from doing LPs from dawn until dusk to help us navigate myasthenia gravis as it might be presented in paces. So Anna, thanks for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here, Sam. Thank you. So, Anna, if we go back in time a little bit, what are your lasting memories of PACES? I think as a cardiologist, you'll appreciate the the vast quantity of beta blocker I had to take before going into my PACES exam and then coming out of it and thinking there really was no need for that cocktail of beta blockers I took. Because actually, the examiners, when you go in, you realise that they are very much there to observe you and just to make sure you're safe 
and they are not there to try and drill you or grill you or fail you. And I think that's something that a lot of people forget when they go in. So just be confident and calm and you'll be fine. Practice, practice, practice and go in and do what you do. And Anna, I, I wonder if you can shed some light on more generally approaching neurology in paces, which I think many listeners find one of the trickier stations. Um, I wonder if you could give us some top tips to give our listeners the best chance of doing well in that particular station. Uh, well, first off, this exam is not a consultant's exam. So no one's expecting you to be able to name every abstruse neurological condition and pick up on all the eponymous signs you know, what they want to know is if their grandmother was rushed into A&E tonight and the A&E consultant asked for a registrar opinion and you're that opinion, is their grandmother going to be well looked after? So you don't need to know the ins and outs. You need to be competent. And actually, that leads on to the second point, which is being competent is one thing. Appearing competent and confident is another so if, you, if you're going into your neurology station, fumbling with your ophthalmoscope and you're using the wrong end of your tuning fork and you can't get the little round bit off the, um, off the pins, then you're not going to create the right impression. You want to reassure them. And that means that you know your kit. And the only way to do that is to examine lots of patients. I think also just knowing how to present your findings, start with something punchy, like a one or two sentence summary and never, it's my pet hate, Sam, never start with so. I hate it when people say so I examined. I haven't asked anything yet. Just go straight into it. So you're going to start something punchy like I examined this lady with bilateral ptosis and a head droop that was visible from the end of the bed, but she didn't have any evidence of respiratory compromise. And then you've already told the examiner kind of what they need. They've seen that you have observed the important signs in a patient and that you've excluded any of the dangerous signs, and then, then you're on a roll. Um, be familiar with the common presentations, which I guess we all know what they're going to be. They're not going to wheel down somebody very crumbly from the ITU who's in a, you know, a myasthenic crisis. What they're going to do is they're going to wheel down the very stable neurology patients who've got reasonable signs. So that's going to be the MND patients, Stable myasthenics, MS, any of the causes of a, of a spastic paraparesis and, and, and things that are, are generally stable and not going to rapidly deteriorate. And you so you just get to know them, know about Parkinson's, know about peripheral neuropathies, know about how to do a cerebellar examination. And very occasionally you might get the odd myopathy, but not really. So you can kind of predict the common cases that are going to come up and, and put your money on those. When you go into a neurology station, the main aim is to isolate the site of the lesion. You need to think, is it central nervous system? Is it peripheral nervous system? Is it neuromuscular junction or is it muscle? And if it's the CNS, is it brain? And if it's brain, is it supratentorial or brainstem? Or is it spine? And sometimes you'll go in and it's, it's not clear, you know, they're areflexic with upcoming planters or something. But what you have to do then is most of the signs will point in, in, in one location and that's what you put your money on. Uh, and once you've narrowed it down to a location, you just use your surgical sieve to narrow down the possible etiologies, presenting the most common ones first. So if, if you've got a peripheral neuropathy, you don't come up with amyloidosis, you come up with diabetes, alcohol, vitamin B12 deficiency, you come up with the common ones first. And that's it, you know, as long as you can just stick by simple rules, you'll be fine. Yeah, fantastic advice there. And later in the show, Anna will be the next registrar featuring in Reg Against the Machine. This is the quiz where our registrar guests are subjected to a quiz loosely related in some way to either them or their specialty, generated randomly by a machine I've bought with my remaining study budget. But more on that at the end of the show. For now, let's get started on Myasthenia Gravis. So, if we can make a start, maybe you can help us by starting off defining what exactly is myasthenia gravis. Uh, it's a disease. Um, it's an acquired disease mediated by antibodies. 
against the postsynaptic nicotinic acetylcholine receptor uh, in most cases. So 85% of patients have antibodies directed against uh, those postsynaptic receptors. And what that means is that the, the synaptic transmission is impaired. You're releasing your quanta of, of transmitter of acetylcholine, but it's just not having the effect at the end plate. In the short term, that just means that for every impulse that is propagated down the nerve, fewer of them will be conducted. But in the long term, because you have this antibody binding, you get a lot of complement deposition, internalization of the receptors, synaptic folds become flattened and, and the synaptic cleft widens. So the first stage, you know, if you immunosuppress people, if you increase the amount of acetylcholine in the, in the neuromuscular junction, then they can recover, they can, they can um, function. But with that prolonged exposure to antibodies, after a while, your, your synapse is essentially knackered. And no matter how much you immunosuppress, it's not going to improve things. So it goes from a reversible condition of failed neuromuscular transmission with intermittent fluctuating weakness to not in the 21st century, but previously to a more fixed weakness. Brilliant. And one of the things we always talk about on the show is where are the candidates most likely to find a station like this? And it's probably going to be a station five, the brief clinical consultations, or possibly a station three as a pure neurology examination station. In either of these, it's probably fair to say that the examination will be focused on the eyes. Would you agree with that, Anna? Certainly eye signs are, you know, it's, it's the end of the bedogram, isn't it? You look at the patient, they've got droopy eyelids and you know, maybe a bit of salivation um, and it's fluctuating, then, then it's, it's a safe bet. But that said, there are conditions that mimic myasthenia or, or uh, myasthenia gravis. Uh, there are conditions that, other conditions that cause atosis, there are other conditions that cause strabismus. And that's why it's important not just to you know walk in and see somebody with ptosis and think got it in one you do have to examine the rest of them but yeah certainly it's a very safe bet in neurology that somebody's going to have eye involvement because you want someone stable stable myasthenics uh, might be ocular myasthenics so about 20 percent of patients have just got pure ocular myasthenia you know you're not going to worry about them going into respiratory arrest in your exam so yeah, I'd say I'd say the eyes are, are are a good first first sign to pick up. So we know it probably is likely to come in one of those two stations. So if we start off with a station five, you'll be asked to start off where you will be required to take a short focused history from the patient. And one question we always look at, Anna, is what is the likely vignette brief going to be for the candidate? What's the likely presenting complaint of these patients going to be to give the candidates a clue before they even set foot into the station? Going back to what you said about the eyes, if, if it's an ocular myasthenia, it could be 32-year-old woman comes to you complaining of a droopy eyelid at night. Uh, it could be this... 30-year-old lady presents to you with double vision. And then more generally, this 65-year-old man presents with worsening weakness. And if they do say weakness, then the point that they will want you to come to is, is this a fixed weakness? Is it a slowly progressive weakness? Or is this a fluctuating weakness that is characteristic of myasthenia gravis? Perfect. So, if we start off with a station five type scenario where the candidates are going to be taking a short focused history, Anna, what are the cardinal features that our listeners need to ask about which will narrow this down to a patient who possibly has myasthenia gravis? Before you, know, before you even think about taking history from them, you just need to look at them. So you know, if, you, if you walk in, it's you know, obviously with the obvious signs of you know, ptosis and strabismus and not being able to speak properly, dysarthria, etc. Um, if you walk in, it's a, a usually a female, age between 25 and 45. Sometimes it can occur in older males as well. There's also, um, I said earlier that, that it's often caused by um, an antibody to nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. In, in a 
sort of 50% of patients who don't have those nicotinic acetylcholine receptor antibodies, it's a musk antibody, a muscle-specific kinase antibody. And they're often young Afro-Caribbean females. If you walk in and it's a 20-year-old Afro-Caribbean woman uh, with, with ptosis and dysarthria, again, you're going to be thinking about myasthenia. And when you're asking about the history of the complaint, you need to nail down fatigability. So they're not just weak. It's weakness that worsens with repetition. It's weakness that worsens towards the end of the day. And any skeletal muscle can be affected. So working from the top down, which is how I tend to do a neurological history, you want to ask about ptosis that gets worse towards the end of the day after they've been watching TV or reading for a long time. Intermittent double vision and double vision that changes with direction of gaze. So they might say, oh, yes, yeah, sometimes the images are one on top of each other. Sometimes the images are, are, are horizontal to each other. Um, ask about difficulty chewing that gets worse at the end of the meal. And I can't tell you the number of times, actually, that I've spoken to patients, both with myasthenia and well, more often actually motor neuron disease, but they say, yeah, for the last three months, I, I haven't been eating any meat and I've actually just been pureeing my meals. So chewing uh, and, and swallowing are really important. Ask about a head drop. And sometimes when you walk in, and again, I've seen this, people will literally have to prop their necks up with their hands. And then proximal muscle weakness. The typical exam scenario is somebody who says, I'm having difficulty washing my hair or brushing my hair or I'm climbing the stairs. And when you're in the, particularly the station five uh, scenario, what they want to see you do and make it very clear is that you want to make sure the patient is safe. So they want you to ask about dyspnea and about paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. And they want you to ask about dysphagia and about choking. And then I think as long as you've, you've covered those points in the presenting complaint, that's fine. Um, and then you can go on to, to other features in the history. Would you like me to go over those now? Yeah, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, so with, with myasthenia, a lot of patients have, have coexisting autoimmune disease. And about 10 disease have, about 10% sorry, have an autoimmune thyroid disease. So you, you want to ask about that. Uh, you want to ask about cancer uh, for two reasons. First of all, because we're becoming increasingly aware that the, the very fashionable immune checkpoint inhibitors induce a lot of autoimmune conditions, and particularly they can induce myasthenia gravis. And because malignancy is associated with a condition that I guess we'll talk about later, which is Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, and that's particularly lung cancer. Thinking about again about, about malignancy, weight loss, cough, hemoptysis, and something that I think gets overlooked a lot when you're uh, thinking about Lambert-Eaton, which is a really rare condition, so it's, it's not going to be coming up, I shouldn't think, for many of you, but ask about the autonomic symptoms, so dry mouth, change in sweating, palpitations, postural syncope, that sort of thing. Family history of autoimmune conditions, um, and it's worth asking just for the brownie points, but it's never going to come up, is whether there's a family history of, of congenital myasthenic syndromes. And then in, in social history, it's all, you know, in the, all these histories, you want to be asking the generic things, smoking, alcohol, etc. but also things like, how is this affecting their day-to-day -day activity? How is it affecting their work? Do you have to think about bringing physiotherapists and occupational therapists in? And, and most crucially, from a safety point of view, which is going to be a big tick in the box, is do they drive? Because if they've got diplopia and ptosis and they're driving, then you're going to be going to be in trouble. There was a, a patient who was seen by a, a neurology colleague of mine who was driving, taping his eyelids up. So it's uh, it does happen, and, and, you, and you'd be surprised by um, by by what by how by how people try and cope. Wow, that is certainly a unique coping mechanism, you might say. And one other thing which is a possibility is that the patient might have a known diagnosis of myasthenia gravis with symptoms of another sort, and this may actually be triggering a myasthenic crisis. So Anna, what exactly is a myasthenic crisis and why do we tend to worry about it? Myasthenic crisis is a, an exacerbation of an underlying myasthenic condition that results in a compromise uh, to respiratory and bulbar function. 
And the reason I worry about it is that it's not always predictable and it can be quick uh, and it's treatable, it's manageable. Um, so that's why I'm very aware of it and always err on the side of caution. Uh, obviously, in the exam situation, you will not be assessing a patient who is anywhere near a myasthenic crisis. Um, but what they could ask you about are things like what are the criteria, what, what are the sort of criteria you'd worry about um, preceding a myasthenic crisis? What are the, under what conditions would you think about referral to ITU um, and those sort of things? So what I'd say is that, you know, you want to make it clear that if the patient, if you're concerned about the patient, you'll escalate early, but more specifically, if their force vital capacity is less than 20 uh, mils per kilogram, or there's a, a progressive decline in their force vital capacity, or they've got a SNP, which is a, a sniff inspiratory pressure of less than 40 centimetres of water. Um, they can't complete sentences. They can't control their own secretions, so they can't manage their own secretions. Uh, and if they can't lift their head off the pillow, those are all signs of a patient who's approaching uh, respiratory and bulbar compromise and will require uh, ITU assessment pretty promptly. Yeah, and one of the things I remember during my neurology job, which helped in monitoring patients like this and their progression of their myasthenic condition, was asking them to count to a number as high as possible in a single breath. Is that something which you find useful in monitoring these patients? So yeah, a lot of these patients will have weakness of abicularis oris and sort of buccinator in their perioral muscles which means that when you're asking them to do an FVC, they might not be able to get that, um, that particular mouth movement. Asking them to count in one breath as high as they can is something that is repeatable. You can get a good baseline and then you can just ask them to repeat it and monitor their progress that way. So I guess that's not really relevant to paces because, as you said before, we aren't going to get someone in the depths of a myasthenic crisis. But... What the examiners might expect you to know is the various triggers which might exacerbate someone's myasthenia gravis. So Anna, what are these? What are the most common things which might worsen someone's myasthenia gravis? The first thing to think about is, is drugs. Non-depolarizing anaesthetics, they are absolutely co pretty much contraindicated in, in, in myasthenia. One thing that I didn't really appreciate uh, until fairly recently is that not all non-depolarizing drugs are anaesthetic. So for example, I think penicillin is also a non-depolarizing blocker. Various antibiotics, and everyone knows about the aminoglycosides, you know, don't give gentamicin or tobramycin to a patient with myasthenia gravis. And that's you know, a big red box, but caution also with things like macrolides uh, and quinolones and really any drugs with a sort of quinine base. So quinine, quinidine, anything like that. And the way I remember the other ones is just basic LM. So these are drugs to be used with caution. So basic LM, beta blockers, acetazolamide, statins, iodine, like you get in contrast, uh, calcium channel blockers, uh, lithium and magnesium, which is found in quite a few antacids. And as with, with most sort of autoimmune conditions, surgery, infection, those are, those are common triggers and non-compliance with either peridostigmine or with immunosuppression. So more or less, we've covered the key points to ask about in a patient who you suspect may have myasthenia gravis, but there are differential diagnoses to this condition. So Anna, what sort of questions would help differentiate between myasthenia gravis and a differential diagnosis which might cause very similar symptoms? We've already touched about um, Lambert-Eaton, and the, it's one of the few other causes of a, of a fatigable weakness. Um, and it's going to be one of the few that the examiners know about. So if they do ask you a question about, about uh, differentials, this should be one of the ones you come up with. And it's also one of the ones that they want to know that you're excluding with your history. So I've already mentioned asking about cancer, about 50% of Lambert-Eaton syndrome is associated with, with small cell lung cancer. Um, and in Lambert-Eaton, the ocular and bulbar and respiratory weakness 
that you see quite a bit in generalised uh, myasthenia gravis is rare. So it's mainly lower limb weakness and fatigability, and they get pretty prominent autonomic uh, symptoms, dry mouth, dry eyes, constipation, postural hypotension, all that sort of stuff. Um, so you want to be asking about, again, as you've mentioned, about smoking, hemoptysis, weight loss, and then and then just asking questions that will that would be suggestive of the current malignancy as well. The other differential to think about in terms of, of a, a fatigable weakness is botulism, but obviously they're not going to present you with a patient who's got botulism. If it came up in an exam and they said, you know, what would you think about if somebody presented like this, but very acutely, then you think about somebody who's got a descending, rapidly progressive weakness with diplopia, and they also get the same sort of dysautonomic symptoms. So not only do they get weakness, diplopia, um, ptosis, dysarthria, dysphagia, and dyspnea, but they also get medriasis and all the other um, autonomic symptoms. The causes of, of a neuromuscular junction blockade are rare, so that what they will usually expect you to think of and what you should be thinking of if somebody presents with a weakness are those general causes of a progressive lower motor neuron or, or muscle weakness. So the congenital and acquired myopathies like inclusion body myositis, which is a, a really good um, examination because they've got mainly, you know, mainly middle-aged and elderly men with finger and wrist flexor weakness and hip flexor and knee extensor weakness. The plethora of signs that you get in dermatomyositis, um, polymyositis as well, because those are conditions that are chronic and are usually fairly well managed, but with signs, um, and then other causes of, of, of a myopathy, drug-induced, drug-induced lower motion neuron syndromes, the endocrine causes of weakness, so Cushing's acromegaly hypothyroidism, and the classic motor neuron disease. But all of those they don't cause the ocular symptoms and the weakness isn't fluctuating. It's progressive. So the history would help distinguish those features. Brilliant. And one thing I just wanted to go back to was the nature of the weakness in a Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome. And is there a way you can clinically differentiate between the two? What you tend to read in textbooks is that Lambert-Eaton will improve with repeated use of the muscle is that the case is is that accurate i would say not it's pretty unreliable and the reason for that is if you think about i'm not going to get too much into the physiology of it because not everybody is is interested in it the reason for the block is that you've got antibodies to the presynaptic calcium channel and what you want to do is increase the amount of acetylcholine that's released into the synapse and the way to do that is by firing your neuromuscular junction as frequently as you can. So you need quite high firing rates and, and repetition rates in order to build up the acetylcholine. Um, so although things like repeatedly stimulating a reflex, so, so one way to distinguish between them is that myasthenics, they tend to retain their reflexes, but then when you keep on doing it again and again, they'll run out because you deplete your acetylcholine. If you very, very quickly repeat the reflexes, like knee jerks on somebody with a, with a Lambert-Eaton syndrome, you might, if you're lucky, get potentiation of the reflex. And the similar thing is reported in exercise, but realistically, the frequency with which you have to stimulate the neuromuscular junction is so high that I wouldn't say it was reliable. Great explanation, Anna. Thanks for that. And so if we move on from the weakness and move on to talking about ptosis, which we've mentioned is another cardinal feature of myasthenia gravis, what sort of questions should the listeners be asking about ptosis to differentiate this from other causes of ptosis? Ptosis is broadly, I'd say, divided, divided into, into those that are congenital and genetic and those that are acquired. Um, so obviously the congenital and genetic ones are going to be either from birth or in childhood um, and may be progressive. And they can be syndromic, so they can be associated with other features, um, often other forms of, of dysmorphism, other eye signs or other signs of a mitochondrial disease. Um, and also you know, other muscle 
diseases. So when you have someone who is presenting with, with a atosis, don't forget to think about the severe congenital myopathies, the myotonic dystrophies, the oculopharyngeal muscular dystrophies, and the, and the mitochondrial diseases, the kern sayer syndrome and the chronic progressive external ophthalmoplegias. But then there are also, you know, I said that they're not always syndromic. So if somebody comes into you and they've got progressive visual loss, they've got ptosis, they've got deafness, and they've got a history of cardiac disease and a peripheral neuropathy, you're going to be thinking about the mitochondrial diseases. But then if somebody comes in and they've got no other sy syndromes or symptoms whatsoever, then it can just be something as simple as, as, as myogenic dysgenesis, which is just dysgenesis of the levator palpebrae muscle. Then in terms of the acquired causes, which will obviously present later in life, the ones that you're going to want to exclude are oculomotor nerve palsies with a strabismus, and that can be uh, pupil sparing or pupil involving, or Horner syndrome, which is the, the classic triad of ptosis, meiosis and, and anhydrosis. And it can be uh, a muscle defect. And the most common cause is in adults is dehiscence of levator palpebrae. So it's called an aponeurotic ptosis. And it's just weakness of that muscle with age. Uh, and it's, it's very common. You see it in a lot of elderly people. So don't always think of ptosis as being pathological. It can be a benign congenital syndrome and it can be age related. So don't always hit the, the myasthenia button when you see it. Yeah, great advice there, Anna. And is it right that usually for a cranial nerve three palsy, you'd expect a unilateral ptosis and the strabismus would be, well, the typical thing you'd read in textbooks is that the eye is deviated down and out. Is that yeah, right? precisely. Precisely, exactly that. Uh, and again, as we've said before, this is not something that's going to be fluctuating. The eye will be deviated down and out, and there will be um, a, you know, a, 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 an obvious ptosis. Um, and you know, if, you, if you've got pupil involvement as well, then really you're home and dry. It's, I think it would be very unlikely that you would confuse a third nerve palsy with, with a myasthenia. Yeah, agree. And just calling back to our previous history, which we spoke about earlier as well. I know I mentioned about smoking being a, an issue. Um, you know, one one thing which could come up potentially as a cause of a Horner's syndrome is a Pankos tumour, so an apical lung tumour. So there are multiple causes of a given presentation where even small things like smoking could be, you know, could be important when you come to take the history. When, when you're in paces, you've just got to go through the motions. So it doesn't matter if this person's coming with an ingrowing toenail. You've got to ask about smoking. That's, that's how it works. <laughs> Great point. Great point. Um, perfect. So that pretty much wraps up the history side of things. So next we're going to be covering the examination of these patients, both in a station three and in a station five. Hello listeners, just taking one second to give a quick signpost towards our sponsors PassTest.com who have over 100 video cases for you to advise for paces whenever and wherever you want. In relation to this episode, in the neurology section of their website they have two cases specifically related to how you might examine a patient with myasthenia gravis. So once you're done listening here, head over to PassTest.com paces to get access to these all important video cases. So as usual with most examinations in a station five, it's going to be very time pressured. It's not going to be quite the same in a station three, but if we start off with the examination, we'll cover this as comprehensively as we can with the proviso that if the listeners have a station five, they will have to contract down and remove unnecessary parts of the examination and include only the most important points, which I hope we're going to draw more attention to. So Anna, if we're thinking about our examination, let's start with the cranial nerves. How are we going to start with those? One thing to say to start off with is if the examiner asks for a cranial nerve examination and you detect myasthenia, you still need to examine all of the cranial nerves. You still need to examine the trigeminal because they have asked you for, for a cranial nerve examination. If you go in 
you examine the eyes and they say, please examine the eyes and then proceed as you see fit, then that is not an indication to do a cranial nerve examination. That is an indication that they want you to draw some conclusion from your examination of the eyes, whether that is, as we've already discussed, a fluctuating dipopiarentosis, and then do your focused myasthenia exam. On the other hand, if they just say cranial nerve exam, you've got to do all the cranial nerves and ideally add in the myasthenia-specific manoeuvres. If you can't, if you don't have time, that's okay too. As long as you cover what you need to cover and pick up the signs. So you're going to go in, do all your normal stuff. So the wipe, wash, introduce, pain, permission, exposure. Do your end of the bedogram, inspect the room. Do they have an FEC machine? Have they got walking aids, oxygen? Have they got medications in front of them? Look at the patient. Have they got IV access for steroids or IVIG? Do they have from the end of the bed a ptosis? Have they got an eye patch or prism in their lenses? Prism in the lenses is not so common in myasthenia because a prism will correct a, a fixed defect and it's usually fluctuating in a myasthenic. Do they have a myasthenic snarl? So when you smile at them, are they able to smile back or is it more the snarl? Are they supporting their head with their hands? Are they obviously dyspneic? And have they got a thymectomy scar from the end of the bed, which you probably won't see unless they've got their full exposure. Um, and then starting uh, your cranial nerve examination, obviously you're going to do the cranial nerve so you know, sense of smell. If they you know, offer visual acuity, colour vision, pupil reflexes and ophthalmoscopy, then you test their range of eye movements. Do they have a variable ophthalmoplegia? So do it more than once. And can they sustain up gaze for more than 30 seconds? So do your normal, whatever you do, whether it's an H shape or the diamond shape, then raise your hand and keep them looking up for 30 seconds. Do they develop ptosis? Can they maintain up gaze or does their superior rectus start to weaken? Uh, and if you do see ptosis at this point, say, I would like to offer an ice pack test to reverse the ptosis. And then cranial nerve five, cranial nerve seven. So do all your cranial nerve seven, but then also peak sign. So not only are you asking them to, to close their eyes tight, but close their eyes against resistance to test the bicularis oculus. Can they really keep their eyes closed? You should never be able to open someone's eyes with your hand and ask them, can they, can they sustain a smile? Have they got that myasthenic snarl, their abicularis oris? Can they purse their lips together? against you trying to open their lips and usually they will you will not be able to open a healthy person's mouth if they have curled their lips in tightly and then if it's a cranial nerve examination you go on and you test hearing and balance and all the bulbar function as well but particularly in a myasthenic patient as we've already discussed I would usually ask a patient to count as high as they can in one breath and then you're listening for dysarthria pharyngeal escapes that kind of breathy air escaping and it's a good indicator of their vital capacity so if they can count to less than 15 i would say in one breath and the reason and it's a, it's a neuromuscular reason then that is a worrying feature uh, and ask the patient to cough as well that's if they can't, haven't got an effective cough i would be concerned and I wonder if, if we could just go back quickly to the ice pack test. What, what exactly does that involve? So it's, it's, it's exactly what it says on the tin. You have your patient and ideally they've got a quite marked ptosis. If they haven't already, then try and exhaust them by maintaining up gaze for a certain amount of time. So, you know, their, their levator palpebrae becomes, becomes progressively weaker uh, and they develop a, a more marked ptosis. And then you, to, to the eye, apply a, an ice pack. Uh, and the the theory is is that uh, colder temperatures enhance um, enhance neuromuscular transmission. Uh, so you keep the ice pack on for a couple of minutes as long as they can tolerate, really, uh, and then you take it off, and the ptosis will have partially reversed. Fantastic. So carrying on, you've covered the respiratory and bulbar function. So what would you suggest looking at next? So I always, as I say, work from top down. So so neck. Have they got central line scars from previous plasma exchange or, or tracheostomy scars? Check neck flexion and extension because, as I said, if they can't lift their head off the bed, they're probably booking a ticket to ITU. Um, Percuss for thymoma or um, so 
50%, I think it is, of young uh, seropositive patients have thymic hyperplasia and about 10% have a thymoma. Uh, so just because for it, it looks good. They'll ask you why and you can say because 10% have a thymoma and you look very professional. Um, and then arms, can they sustain abduction, abduction for 20 seconds Do the arms sag and tested against resistance, are they weak? And the way to test fatigability in any muscle is by asking them to either sustain or repeat a movement. So ask them to repeatedly abduct their arm 20 times and reassess power against resistance. Is it fatigable? Um, one thing to do is an alternative to that, which is probably a bit quicker, is to ask the patient to relax their right arm, but continue to abduct the left arm against resistance for a few seconds, for sort of 20 seconds, and then compare the left and the right. So the left will have been exerting itself while the right will have been recovering. And after that, the left arm will be weaker if they've got a fatigable weakness. Uh, if they're asking for a limb exam, check bone reflexes, coordination and sensation. But if if you're on a myasthenic roll, if they've said examine the eyes and then proceed, and you think it's myasthenia, don't, don't bother, they, they don't care. Wasting's rare, and it's only seen in that sort of burned out disease when you've ruined your, your um, synaptic cleft. You can do repeat reflex testing because it'll lead to decrement and eventually elimination if you test it with high enough frequency. And the reflexes in the Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome will be enhanced with repeat testing. Um, legs, pretty much the same as, as the arms. Assess gait if you can, or just at least offer it. Check the patient can flex the hip against gravity with a straight leg raise for 20 seconds and test fatigability by asking them to, to repeat it. But again, tone, reflexes, coordination, sensation, they're all going to be normal. Brilliant. And so I guess the key thing to think about is in a station five, you've got free roam to do whatever you wish in terms of examination, which can be targeted to the patient's presenting complaint. If you're in a station three, you'd hope the examiners would be quite clear with what they expect you to do. They may say, as you said at the start, examine the eyes and proceed as you see fit. And this is your opportunity, once you've finished examining the eyes, to add in the extra li little bits, which might include some brief examinations of the limbs. But Anna, one thing I wanted to ask is, you mentioned a few times about the fact that this is a fatigable weakness. And to demonstrate this during your examination, you need time for the patient to look up for 30 seconds or raise their arms for 30 seconds. And in a station five, that's exactly what the candidates don't have. They don't have time. So with that in mind, what would you suggest to try and overcome some of this time pressure? And what are the key parts of the examination that you should do your best to demonstrate myasthenia gravis? There are three things I'd say. The first is that you don't have to demonstrate fatigability in every muscle. If you demonstrate fatigability in a muscle group, then you've demonstrated fatigability. So go for the, go for the muscles that are most likely to demonstrate it. Um, the second thing is that you can combine tests. So if you want to focus on doing, um, asking them to look up for 30 seconds whilst counting as high as they can uh, in one breath, then you've killed two birds with one stone. You've, well, more than that, really, you've checked their bulbar function, you've checked their respiratory function, and you've checked for fatigable ptosis. So already you've done two of those things. The third thing to say is that you can be selective. If you've combined the tests and you're selective in what you do, then you can really save time. And the tests that I would go for are eyes, facial weakness, neck and bulbar function and arm. And if you've covered those, then you've covered everything. So check for fatigable weakness in the arm, check they've got a reasonable cough and that they can count to 20. And if you can do that combined, then that's, that's fine as well. That is absolutely fantastic. Great time-saving advice. Combining fatigable weakness with respiratory and bulbar function examination. Amazing. Great advice. Love it. Okay, so that pretty much wraps up our examination. So Anna and I are off for a quick break, but after this, we will be back talking about the investigation and management of these patients.
moving on to the investigations of these patients. So in a station five, this is something you're going to report back to the patient after you've finished your history. And in an examination station, this is what the examiner is going to ask you when you come to present at the end of the station. So Anna, when you come to the end of the station, what are the types of investigations that our listeners should be either telling the patient or telling the examiner? You kind of divide it into the bedside tests and assessments and then the formal investigations. What I tended to do was before the examiner even asked me uh, any questions, I'd say to complete my examination, I would like to. And that's the same in every station. And I have a little list of everything that I do for each common presentation. In a myasthenic um, exam, I'd say I would like to perform bedside tests. This would include the ice pack test to reverse the fatigable ptosis. I would like to check force vital capacity to ensure that the patient is not respiratory compromised. I would like to perform a formal assessment of power using a dynamometer and formally assess fatigability with this. I would like to formally assess the severity on the myasthenia gravis composite scale. Uh, I'd like to request a speech and language assessment. And if they've got any ocular involvement, I'd like optometry to review the patient. Um, And it just, if you've got that list, it makes you look like you've seen these patients before and you know what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And so we've already discussed the ice pack test. The force vital capacity, obviously, is something which, you know, you'd be concerned about in in an acutely unwell patient or someone with deteriorating uh, myasthenia gravis. What on earth is a (laughs) dynamic... I can't even say it. Dynam- <laughs> a dynamometer. It's, dynamometer. What is it? Sometimes on, on the wards, um, it's like a grippy, it's a grippy thing. Often it's got like a, uh, a rotating circle on it, um, but sometimes they're electronic now uh, and you squeeze it essentially and you can generate a certain amount of, of, of power and it's a, it's a, it's a measure of, of the strength of your grip and you can use it as a baseline. So it's quite useful, for example, if you're seeing patients from month to month uh, to see how they're progressing, see if they're improving or or getting worse. But it's also quite good if you want to assess them after repeated squeezing to see whether their power just goes down precipitously after they're exerting themselves. Brilliant. Thank you for explaining that. And moving on to the other formal investigations for myasthenia gravis, what are the other things our listeners should be reporting to the examiners? The two crucial ones are EMG, And there are two forms of VNG that uh, you'll need to be interested in. The first is repetitive stimulation. If you think about how myasthenia works, if you stimulate the the presynaptic nerve, it will release X number of of quanta. The next time you release a number of quanta, most of those channels will be refractory. Uh, because they've got so few channels left, even after a second stimulation, there aren't going to be enough channels to bind. So you're going to get fewer muscle fibres that are able to generate an end plate potential and fewer fibres are going to contract. So each time you repeat it, you're going to get a decrease in the um, size of the end plate potential. So you're going to get a decrement of about more than 10% between the first and fourth compound muscle action potential. Uh, that's about 80% sensitive. Single fibre EMG is when you put tiny little recording electrodes in, in myofibre pairs uh, and, you, and you stimulate simultaneously. And because, as I said before, the reliability of stimulation is less in myasthenia, you're going to have what we call jitter. So the signal that you record, which is usually simultaneous, will not be simultaneous because one myofiber will only reach threshold after the other one. And that's called jitter. So basically, you're going to get EMG to look for decrement on repetitive stimulation and for jitter. And that's much more sensitive. That's sort of 95% plus sensitive. And the other crucial test, of course, is the blood tests. So tests for nicotinic acetylcholine receptor antibodies. Uh, You might offer the um, musk antibodies, the muscle-specific kinase antibodies, if they've got predominantly resp, bulbar, paraspinal weakness, or they're a young Afro-Caribbean female. 
Some people usually wouldn't offer this as a first line, but later on, uh, striated muscle antibodies, so titan and ryanogen receptor antibodies, are suggestive of an underlying thymoma. And every patient should get thyroid antibodies, because I said about 10% of patients with um, nicotinic acetylcholine receptor antibodies will also have autoimmune thyroid disease. If you've got um, a high index of suspicion for Lambert-Eaton, check their PQ calcium channel antibodies or their voltage-gated calcium channel antibodies. Offer uh, a CT to exclude a thymoma and thymic hyperplasia. And you can offer the Tensilon or, or Edrophonium test. So this is a, a short-acting anticholinesterase that you give, which will reverse, you know, like, like any um, anticholinesterase, like pridostigmine, it'll reverse the effect of the weakness. But this has got a very short half-life and it's potent. So it's got really marked cholinergic side effects. And what you don't want to do is cause your patient to arrest. So you don't do it on any of the dodgy ticker and you always make sure you've got atropine in a recess trolley next to you. Perfect. So that pretty much sums up all the investigations. So next thing you'll be expected to talk about is the management. So Anna, what are the principles of managing patients with myasthenia gravis? The principles are the same as any management. You walk into the room, you do your exam, and when they say, how do you manage the patient? You will say the options are conservative, medical, and surgical. Conservative is just patient education, make sure they've got a patient alert card and refer to the MDT. You want speech and language input, OT input, physio input, and if they've got eye involvement, ophthalmology or optometry input. Medical, if you want to look really slick, say, medically, I would treat this patient according to the Sussman protocol and they will eat it up. So that's the protocol that was developed um, and it's starting pyridostigmine. 30 milligrams to 60 milligrams, four times a day, increasing as required. Consider giving them an antimuscarinic like buscopan because they get GI side effects. If the patient doesn't need to come in, they're not acutely unwell, then you'll start usually a low dose uh, oral steroid. If it's just ocular myasthenia, you give them five milligrams on alternate days, 10 milligrams alternate days for generalized, and you gradually increase it up to 50 on alternate days for ocular and 100 on alternate days for generalised, or as high as they get tolerating it, or as high as they get and they're stable. And then once they're stable for three months, you can gradually wean off the steroid. Um, and then if you wanted to add this, you could say, if I failed to control the disease with steroids, uh, or they relapsed on less than 20 milligrams of prednisolone, uh, I'd consider alternative immunosuppression with something like azathioprine or mycophenolate. But if the patient's unwell and is going to need ITU, you usually start steroids on low doses now patient because there is a risk of paradoxical worsening with high dose steroids, although actually the evidence for that's a bit dodgy. But in if they're going to be intubated and put on ICU, then you don't need to worry about that. So you can just start the high dose steroids immediately. But if they are going to ITU, you avoid your acetylcholinesterase inhibitors because it increases your secretions. Uh, and either plasma exchange or IVIG is a rescue therapy. The surgical guidelines are quite interesting and it's not really stuck to, but there is a suggestion that patients under 45 with generalized myasthenia and with nicotinic acetylcholine receptor antibodies should be offered a thymectomy, even if they don't have thymoma uh, or any particular pathology because it does reduce steroid risk and reduce uh, rates of ITU admission. Amazing. And one thing I just wanted to clarify for the listeners is that Sussman is spelled S-U-S-S-M-A-N. And it's things like that, the little eponymous tidbits that just pop into your head the next time you see a patient present with possible myasthenia gravis. And as much as Anna has been able to give a huge amount of detail on the implementation of the management of these patients, it's always important just to mention in the exam that you would, of course, refer the patient to the neurology team for further workup and management of their condition. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you, if you wanted to condense it, you do the conservative medical surgical, conservative, I said, but then medical treat according to assessment protocol with pridostigmine and steroids. Boom. You don't need to go into details about the doses. You don't need to go into details about anything else. 
Uh, and then you could say, and I could also offer uh, thymectomy depending on the patient and underlying pathology. And then leave it at that. And so just to mention one thing that I think you mentioned briefly earlier in our chat, Anna, was criteria that might necessitate ITU involvement. Um, our listeners are going to be on the medical take or prospective medical registrars. So what are the criteria that might mean involvement of ITU in these patients with myasthenia gravis? I would say looking at the patient, do they look as though they're unwell? I mean, but that goes without saying. If they've got an FVC of less than 20 mils per kg, or they've got a progressive decline in their in their FVC, or they were previously able to count to 20 in one breath, and now they're only able to count to less than 15. If they can't manage their secretions, if they've got um, a sniff nasal inspiratory pressure of less than 40, or they can't complete sentences and they can't lift their head off the pillow. All of those, I would say, would necessitate an urgent ITU review. Perfect. And so that pretty much wraps up our history, examination, investigations and management of a patient with myasthenia gravis. But we're not quite finished yet. We've still got to subject Anna to Reg Against the Machine. The best podcast feature that's ever been seen is Reg Against the Machine. Welcome to Reg Against the Machine. This is the quiz where I interrogate our registrar guests on a random topic which is generated and spat out by a huge machine which I have spaffed my study budget on. So, only one question remains. Anna, how are you feeling? I must say, I'm in a bit of a cold sweat, actually. Well, Anna, there's nothing to worry about. It's all just a bit of fun. So, without further ado, let's crank the handle on our quiz machine and see what random topic it spits out for you. Wow, that came firing out of nowhere. And the quiz is titled Anna France Is. And it's a quiz about what France is or what France has. It's, it's basically a quiz about France. Well, ideal. It's a quiz about what France is for Anna Francis. So this is how we play. There are 10 questions, two points for each question if you can get the answer without the multiple choice options. Or if you need a bit of help, you can get one point for using the multiple choice options. So 20 points up for grabs. Or should I say... 20 points on affair for anything and everything to do with France. Anna, are you ready? As ready as I'll ever be, Sam. <laughs> Question number one. France is home to one of the most famous cycling competitions in the world. What's it called? The Tour de France. And you're on the board for two points. Question number two. France is home to the most popular museum and gallery in the world. What is the name of this museum and gallery? It is the... Oh, Brain Engage... Louvre. The Louvre is correct for two points. Question number three. The tricolore is the name of the French flag due to having three colours. But what three colours are on the French flag. Blue, red, white. Correct. For another two points. Question number four. France is the official language of 29 countries in the world. I'm asking you to name just three of them. Um, France? Correct. I'll let you have France. Thanks. Um... Mozambique? Uh, nope, not Mozambique. But I'll let you have two points if you can get one more. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of... What? There must be so many of... Oh, Niger! Niger is French. Republic of Niger. Okay, wait, hold on. I'm pretty sure you're correct. French-speaking countries and territories. But is it the official language, though? Hold on. French-speaking countries in... Niger is correct. Yes. (laughs) 
French is the official language spoken by about 11% of the population. And this is from nationsonline.org, so it's got to be accurate. Brilliant. I'm just checking that, yeah, so Mozambique, interestingly, from this same website, hold on, because I basically had to search Mozambique, Portuguese is the official oh. language in Mozambique. Mm-hmm. And who said mm-hmm. this? Uh, who said this podcast wasn't uh, diverse in its uh, in its education? Well, I, I feel like I'm being educated. This is great. Okay, so two more two more points for France and Niger. This is question number five, and this is where it starts to get a little bit uh, a little bit. This one's a little bit tricky. Question number five. This one is just quite bizarre and for that reason i'm going to give you the multiple choice options and i'll just give you two points if you get it right because it's Sweet, brilliant. because because essentially there is almost no way of you knowing the correct answer unless you've looked on the same fact about france website that i've looked at in the last few hours i kind of feel like you're doing this out of pity for me sam <laughs> wouldn't dream of it question number five France is full of stereotypes, but which of these exaggerated stereotypes is considered bad luck in France? Is it bad luck to turn a baguette upside down? Is it bad luck a beret falling off your head? Is it bad luck to tread on a snail? Or is it bad luck to wear a vertically striped navy and white jumper? Hmm. I'm gonna say tread on a snail. It sounds, this is it, it sounds plausible, but it's actually turning a baguette upside down. Well, I mean, I suppose in terms of losing your lunch, if that's one of those vertically sliced baguettes, well, then that would be bad luck. It would be. Apparently, or it's, some, it's something like bread being the opposite way up. Apparently, that is bad luck in France. You shouldn't have your bread the wrong way up. Is there a pan in the arse? <laughs> Phenomenal. <laughs> Phenomenal. Um, <laughs> okay. So, no points in question number five. Question number six. France is the home of romance, but where is it illegal to kiss your spouse in France? Uh, where is it illegal to kiss your spouse? I mean, I can give you the multiple so choice options. Answers. So many answers in the, uh, are horribly springing into my mind that it makes me a bit sick. Um, it's going to be some church. Oh, yeah. Give me the multiple choice, please, Sam. Sure. So the multiple choice options are, is it illegal to kiss your spouse in a bakery, in a restaurant, on a train platform, or on top of the Eiffel Tower? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm going to say a train platform, Sam. And you'd be correct. Oh! And do you know the reason why? Uh, is it only if you're having an affair with the person you're kissing? No, it's because oh. it's because all the uh, sad goodbyes made all the trains late, so everyone would snog oh. for ages on the train platform, and then uh, and then jump on the train and they and they'd make all the trains late because they'd be snogging. Question number seven: Louis the nineteenth was only the monarch of France for a very, very short amount of time. But how long? And I'll give you one hour either side. Five hours. Would you like the multiple choice options? (laughs) Sam, can I have the multiple choice options, please? Of course you can. Was it A, 20 minutes? B, one hour and 20 minutes, C, three hours and 20 minutes, or D, 10 hours and 20 minutes? One hour and 20 minutes. Believe it or not, Anna, it was just 20 minutes. That is brief. Moving on to question number eight. The oldest woman to ever live was called Jeanne Calmon from Arles in France. But how old was she when she died? And I'll give you two years either way. I'm going to go for 109. She was 122. Good Lord. That's old. Wow. Oh, gosh. That, that, that's proper old. That's real yeah. old. Question number nine. France is home to the highest mountain peak in Europe. Which mountain? <laughs> 
Oh, it's the Alps. It's the oh something Blanc. Oh, Mont, Mont Blanc. Correct for two points. Thank you. Moving on to question number ten, and your final question. France is home to many types of fantastic food, but one piece of food, the croissant, was actually invented somewhere else. Where was it invented? Um, I'm going to say it was in Italy. It wasn't Italy. It was actually Austria. Ah, they are good with their pastries. They certainly are, and that draws the quiz to a close giving you a final score of 11 out of 20. Oh, gosh. That would be, if I got 11 out of 20 in paces, that would be a big fail. (laughs) Well, just as well that that is a hazy, distant memory in your medical career. And Dr. Anna Francis, that only leads us to give a huge thank you for giving up some of your time to help us learn about France and more importantly, how to approach a patient scenario of a patient presenting with myasthenia gravis. So Anna, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. No problem at all. And you're always welcome back anytime. But listeners, that pretty much wraps up this episode of the Pre-Paces podcast looking at myasthenia gravis. The usual disclaimers before we say goodbye. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Please do consider giving us a five-star review on whatever podcasting platform you use. Follow us on Twitter for a daily bite-sized learning roundup of all the important learning points from each episode. You can get in touch either on our Twitter, which is at prepacespodcast, or you can email us prepacespodcast at gmail.com. Another way you can get in touch is over at our brand new website, a new edition for 2022. That is www.prepacespodcast.com. To be quite honest with you, there's not a whole lot up there at the moment, but keep your eyes peeled for some very exciting developments, which will be going up there first over the weeks and months to come. As ever, I've been your host, Dr. Sam Williams, and we will see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast. <laughs>